Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The direct advice that we were given very frequently was never apologize. It's an admission of guilt. Right. But how often do you apologize to a partner or a child or a grandparent? Not because you're at fault, but because you just, you you harmed them. Sure, they as fit, we should. And, <laughs> right, but yet we do not carry that into the workplace. Somehow that's vi- that's like taboo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan and I'm joined by my all over the place co-host Rodney <laughs> Evans. It feels like that this week. Hi. Y'all. I mean that in the most complimentary way. <laughs> We are also joined by uh, Jason Weiner, a friend of The Ready and an unconventional attorney with a focus on alternative finance, broad-based ownership, cooperatives, and what I will loosely call brave new legal work. He's also the founder of Jason Weiner PC and the Main Street Phoenix Project. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, hey. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the legal future of work. But before we unpack that, let's check it in. <laughs> Is that what we're saying now? Let's yeah, check it in. Let's check it in. Let's check it on in. Okay, Don't I like phone that. phone it in. Check all it right. in. <laughs> we will. We shall. Like we do. All the time. Uh, our check-in round question for today is, what is one fashion trend from your past that you are embarrassed to have rocked? <laughs> I have so many, but I will start with Aaron, then Jason, then me. I was a pretty big slap bracelet advocate. Oof. Yeah. I mean, someone who's a fidgeter, plus it's a bad, like, fashion trend, it was perfect for me. So, yeah, multiple slap bracelets on the wrist, looking like a a bad, you know, Coldplay lead singer from the 80s. I don't know. That was my deal. Nice. Jason? It's hard to pick the one that's most embarrassing, but what comes to mind is the tight roll MC Hammer pants from probably 1988 to 1989. Yeah, I did that too. I did all of them. My style icon when I was in middle school was Blossom of the TV show Blossom. Of course. So, you know, there was a lot of like baby doll dresses with floppy hats. <laughs> a lot of you don't know what I look like, but it's not it's not great. It's not an ideal kind of outfit for me uh, <laughs> with like high Doc Martens. It, I was all over the place. So um, I, I'm glad that I've gotten my shit together at least a little bit since then. I forgot floppy hats. Oof, loved a floppy hat with like a big flower in the front. Oh, my God. I mean, it was a thing. Okay, so today's topic, as I mentioned, is the intersection between the legal profession, the law, and the future of work. And so I guess I want to start by asking you, Jason, how how would you describe the moment we're at in the legal profession as it relates to business and the future of work and what we're kind of hoping to change about how things work in the world going forward? Like, where are we now in space and time? So we're at a moment where I think conventional legal doctrine 
is lagging more tenuously to reality than ever before. So we have to remember that legal norms, legal doctrine, laws are all designed after the fact. They lag sometimes up to a decade or more behind reality. And the norms of societal mores and behaviors that we want to either incentivize, protect, or or certain things we want to guard against. And I think the pandemic has really revealed how broken and stagnant legal norms and regulation can be. And I think because technology just continues to accelerate, we're seeing ever faster adaptation that's leaving the law behind. So look at securities regulation and the democratization of finance. Look at cryptocurrency and tokens and the idea that traditional banking and banking regulation looks like Sanskrit that's being interpreted by computer coders. Um, The law of work is changing even as fast as technology. We went from this bifurcated universe of independent contractors and employees that worked okay in the 1930s, 1960s, probably didn't work all that well in the 80s and 90s. And here we are today with strata of work relationships that is totally unrecognized by current law. And so I think right. we're struggling to even be, even hold back laughing at how arcane our legal system is when it comes to defining work relationships. It's so funny. I was, uh, it's not funny, haha. It's funny, horrible. But I was, yeah. uh, I was facilitating a workshop a few years ago for a very large technology organization. And we got into this conversation about, you know, gig workers and the fact that 40% of their team was freelancers or something crazy like that. And when we got to the part about experimentation, the only thing that they could think of was let's convert everyone to full time and bring them into the office. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes. Pump the brakes here. Like that. Surely that's not the only solution we can think of. But but in fairness to them, when you consider where we are at in terms of what is actually legal, it's hard it is a hard thing to navigate. It is. And if we wait long enough, we might actually see our reality circle back to a place where an 80-year-old paradigm of of work legal structure makes sense again. And by that, I mean, we've spent 40 years living through the demise of organized labor and collective bargaining. And we're now seeing a resurgence through Alphabet and Amazon, and we might actually see a full historical epical cycle that justifies reinforcing collective bargaining rights. And I'm a labor advocate. I'm wearing my freelancers union shirt and I'm all for union (laughs) rights, but it's a blunt instrument when we have such a varied set of circumstances. But I think we might actually get back to a place where some of those legal regimes make sense again. You know, speaking of rolling the clock back, I am curious to hear kind of your origin story, because to be transparent to to all of our listeners, when I was introduced to you, I was basically so, so, so tired of engaging with attorneys that didn't understand what I was trying to do. And what I was trying to do was actually take better care of people, be more trusting, be more enabling, be more transparent, like think about risk in a completely different way. And it was really hard to find someone that would, I don't want to say allow me to do that, but would enable and support my desire to do that. And so when when we first met, it felt like a very different thing. And I'm just wondering, how did you go from Jason in law school to the, the Jason that's on the show today, who maybe has some pretty iconoclastic thoughts about what's okay? 
Well, the story actually starts uh, before that in college. So I went to the School of Industrial Labor Relations. It's a labor studies program. We studied passages, prose of Karl Marx in every class, in every semester for four years. Uh, the idea that capitalism was an island among, on an atoll or, or a set of other islands was, was not new. So capitalism mm. was never meant to be the norm in my historical and economic belief set. So the first step is I went to law school with a normative belief that the law and the way it's practiced reflects directly on a set of principles and values. Law school perpetuates the myth that the law is blind, justice is blind, that there are agnostic norms applied to fact patterns. And we're reckoning with that today as we see that the system of laws has been crafted by humans to perpetuate and protect power structures, albeit white male, cis, and we just don't put words to that. So I went to law school with the wool fully pulled back, knowing that I was not only not a believer, but I was going to hack the legal profession and practice to carry out a set of ideals. So I went to law school. I got really kind of pulled into human rights and labor law and environmental sustainability, all of the kind of ways of practicing law that at the time felt like nonprofit, you know, legal jobs. And I never, mm -hmm. A, could get a job there. I used to keep a stack of rejection letters. The only <laughs> pile thicker than the rejection letters from big law was the rejection letters from nonprofits. And the only stack bigger than that were all the judges who wouldn't hire me for clerkships. And I collected those to remind myself what ultimately, I would be proud of ending up doing. And here I am. I work for myself, doing things my way, speaking truly from my heart, and now gaining experience day by day, seeing that this can be a reality. So the law is not meant to just agnostically, blindly, you know, carry forward doctrine. It's really designed <laughs> to carry forward power. I never bought into that. Mm -hmm. There are so many places we could go from here, but I want to go <laughs> to a place that's like, fairly micro, which is you have this orientation, you have these principles, you clearly feel some obligation to change the way that the legal profession actually works. When you are sitting with, I'm asking this selfishly because it's the same exact shit we do with clients all day. When you are sitting with a client and they are defaulting to the traditional paradigm that is only about avoidance and like let's be honest for most of us who have worked for big companies the day that we call the lawyer is the day that like shit has hit the fan we're usually not calling you with like, terrific news or a brand new idea it's usually like uh -uh, I messed up or I got a letter or you know something bad has happened so when you're in the relationship how do you help people orient to something that is more future oriented more humanistic more adaptive less just like straight up extractive capitalist principle <laughs> this may come as a surprise. I would actually say that profile is no more than 3% of our entire practice. Wow. 97 plus percent of our clients come to us with the, hey, this just happened, or I have this wild idea, or I want to do this thing. We're being pushed by our clients to be ever more radical, uh, human-centric, and adaptive. And I think we've cultivated that by being completely authentic in how we hold ourselves out. And we tell people if, if you're looking to like minimize risk and, and if you're looking to kind of do the things the conventional way, we're not the right mm -hmm. fit. We're just not a good, I mean, we can do that, but that's typically not how we roll. We can, we, we don't. And so we occasionally get the 11th hour, 
you know, the shit has hit the fan call, but we're so proud and honored that our clients typically call us in like hour two. Sometimes it's hour one. Sometimes it's, I had this wild idea. Tell me why I shouldn't spend the day thinking about it. So we are fortunate to be brought in as thought partners. And that's why we call ourselves as much a consultancy as a law firm, because we help people create order and structure out of the miscellany in their mind using the construct and analytical tools we developed in law school. So we can help people operationalize by applying frameworks of order to chaos and concepts and creativity. So how we typically deal with it. So I'm fortunate I spent six years in-house. I like to think before I was able to develop too many bad habits, I took a job I was totally unqualified for based on a disclosure that I was totally inexperienced and untrained to do the things they needed me to do. I made that disclosure. They're like, you're the right person for the job. And I learned everything mm. on the job with no resources or budget to do it. So I had to be you know, scrappy, gritty, resourceful and figure this all out with no legal budget. And I was immediately a member of a strategy team. And I just remember so many times in the beginning, if I ever came to a meeting and just said, no, 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 I became a pariah. I just, I was then mm. sidetracked. So it I was not only like energetically sidetracked, I was told, come with an idea you can get behind. Yeah. So I had to become, and it was already in my in my instinct, I had to become an architect of legally compliant or legal risk optimized solutions. And that's become the DNA of my approach to practice and advice. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. So to take things down to, I don't know, like early days, brass tacks, because this is all can all be like very abstract and, and, you know, theory based. If I'm a small business owner, or I'm a startup founder, I'm getting going on creating a business or an organization that I hope will reflect a lot of the things we talk about on this show. What are the key legal decisions or legal documents or legal moments in that first year or two that stand out to you as like, here's a place to get it right. Here's a place to think different, et cetera. Like where, you know, how would you advise someone to like, look at the body of choices they're going to make and, and maybe do something different? It starts, I think with a reckoning around how one prioritizes their future. So most founders come and they want to preserve optionality. What does that mean? They want to keep all their doors open. And there's been a lot written about the opportunity cost of open windows and open doors. Mm. And I tell founders that is a choice to leave options open means that you will have, you will fight the fatigue of temptation at every step. That is a choice. And that's Mm -hmm. a fairly inconsequential cost to form a legal structure to do that. Easy. Just form a Delaware C Corp or an LLC and keep your options open. And you will have to then kind of close doors incrementally as you go when it comes to bringing on investors, when it comes to bringing on co-founders or other key contributors, stock options or restricted stock, uh, or even thinking about you know commercial agreements. So I tell founders, the first thing is how much of your values and norms do you want to codify because it removes temptation and it and it embraces your normative reality so that you can pursue the product or you can pursue the market. And so that's the first question because a lot of people want their cake and eat it too. They want to form a co-op and they want to be able to fundraise and grow and do all (laughs) these things. And I tell them, well, 
you know, to the earlier point, you always have choices. The question is, what menu of risk and opportunity do you want to optimize for? And I help them understand that. So I very often will caution against investing in a bespoke cooperative structure at the beginning because they don't have proof of concept, they don't have product market fit, and their business is dependent on outside capital. Well, let's optimize for something a little closer to the middle, but let's try then to really thin slice your investor pool and look at people who are open to the idea of radical restructurings. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is not drafting. And so the first thing you're probably hearing is, wow, none of this is stuff I've ever talked about with clerky or legal zoom or a big firm Mm -hmm. venture lawyer because they're trained in volume they're trained in precedent and that's what the law is based on i'm trained in in creative lawyering to optimize for the outcomes of key decision makers and and to do that around a set of values and i i have learned to elevate and i've seen validated that elevating values and principles to become part of the product i.e. part of the DNA of the business structure itself is a major impetus or catalyst for the business achieving product market fit. And I don't Mm -hmm. think we've even scratched the surface of that. And I think a lot of people probably like you see, see it's all one way or all another. And the reality Mm -hmm. is there's an agile kind of meandering way to go about that, but it's part of a conscientious set of choices and and it's part of kind of a staging and that staging can be really thoughtful. So it's a mindfulness practice as much as a legal strategy. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, we were talking as we were getting rolling about just <clears throat> my own history and scar tissue working inside of very large organizations and working with the legal teams and also our external counsel. And, you know, one of the things that really surprised me when we first started working together, Jason, was that in I think the first conversation you and I ever had, you were like, well, what's the outcome that you're after? Mm-hmm. And in my old life, the outcome that was prescribed to me by every lawyer was <laughs> we don't want to read anybody's name in the paper. That was it. Right. And right. that was the only outcome there was, was eliminate as much risk as is humanly possible. End of discussion. Right. And one of the things that that we think a lot about, as you well know, is like about organizational debt and about the the moves that we make that we actually know probably don't protect us, but they make us feel like we're we're doing something that like theoretically could protect us and also gives us the out to say like, well, we did the thing that everybody does and it didn't work. So say la vie. So I don't know, like that, should, that, I have so many years of that pattern on repeat. Like, how do you think about that differently? And how do you help people to consider a variety of outcomes and that agility that you're talking about? I liken it to the way that Western medicine is practiced. We only go to the doctor when we have symptoms. We have symptoms because something in the body has gone wrong and there have been untold warning signs we haven't heeded. If we're following the advice of a big firm litigator, it means that everything beneath the surface of the iceberg (laughs) has already gone wrong. And their whole domain is to resolve conflict through adversarial litigation. Mm -hmm. And so the advice they give is born of that frame. That's their aperture. And they may practice with people who do corporate law but the reality is most lawyers come to their advice through their experience. And most of that experience is in litigation. And mm-hmm. litigation is often also what informs how documents get drafted. Plus, you know, there's some other legal development. I chose early on that it, and, I, and I've been proving this hypothesis that investing in legal at the most primordial level 
net is cheaper than it is to do things the way you want to do it, optimize for the outcomes you want, suffer the consequences, and then call the lawyer. Mm. And I've heard this time and again, it is almost universally true that litigation is almost always more expensive than thoughtfully, mindfully managing legal risk pursuant to an intentional legal strategy or business strategy on the front end mm-hmm. and considering the opportunity for alternative dispute resolution, conciliation, negotiation, resolution. And ultimately, ultimately, what is you know non-criminal law based on? It's based on relationships. It's based on a relationship that went south. Contracts, mm-hmm. which form the basis of almost all dealings in business, whether employment or corporate or other, they're based on consensual agreements. And so those consensual agreements were either asymmetrical to start, they were mm-hmm. either based on Im- imbalanced power, or there's just bad outcomes that people need to remedy. And we typically resort to litigation. But I have looked to empower more consensual relationships. And those do not require heavy, dense, legalistic agreements. Those require mm-hmm. thoughtfulness, intention, good communication. And that, frankly, I think the reason a lot of litigators exist is because too many people get away with really bad communication skills mm-hmm. or just a fundamental lack of practice or trust in fellow humans. Yeah, And so I think that's a really better place to start from a legal practice standpoint. Yeah. Just like as you were saying that, it's like, you know, the vast, vast majority of lawsuits that I was in and around in my old life were like, first of all, so many were like, well, if anyone had just told this person the truth six years ago, we wouldn't be here. Or now that we're here and now that it's in the rear view, like no one ever said, what if we didn't treat people like garbage? Like, no, that was never like that was never part of the conversation. It was just like, what's the rule that we could make now that we've gotten sued for this new thing to prevent that lawsuit from happening? It's like, what if just fundamentally we looked at why people are so fucking mad that they want to sue us all the time? That's an interesting <laughs> question. Or what if I issued an apology as part of a settlement that meant that all of us could walk away feeling like we got something we cared about? And we all avoid the public embarrassment of litigation. But how hard is it to ask another adult to just apologize for the negative effect they've had on you? I mean, that's oh, totally sound yeah. legal advice. Like, let's avoid the uncertainty and let's just be, let's just sit down and remember where things went wrong and what we once thought of each other. But interestingly, the direct advice that we were given very frequently was never apologize. It's an admission of guilt. Right. So when you're laying people off, when you're firing people, when you're having a hard time, never say you're sorry. It was like you could get in trouble with legal for Mm. saying, not I'm sorry I did. I'm sorry this is happening. And so like it's just such an interesting thing to hear you say that because like I was trained in direct opposition (laughs) to that very explicitly. But how often do you apologize to a partner or a child or a grandparent? Not because you're at fault, but because you just you you harm them. Sure. As we should. <laughs> right. But yet we do not carry that into the workplace. Somehow that's vi- that's like taboo. Yeah. Well, and what's emerging for me in, in what y'all are talking about back and forth is that at the core of a lot of the discord in this area and, and miscommunication is just the idea that it feels to me as an onlooker like a lot of the work of the profession, because it's so precise 
so aware of all the different kinds of risk that exist, it obfuscates the truth and it obfuscates clarity for the people that are actually involved in the relationship and that are actually contracting. And so it's extremely common in my experience for someone to sign an employment offer and have no idea what the fuck it means. And so then later there's a dispute and then that leads to a legal action. But actually, if we had all just spoken in plain English, like adults to each other, made sure we had understanding just in a conversation and then papered that with whatever, we would actually avoid 80% of the risk surface. And I just think it's funny that as in so many professions, I would say ours included, like the the expertise becomes a way to create a moat around the profession and the oh, language absolutely. and the precision becomes a moat around the profession. And that creates all these knock-on effects. Absolutely. I mean, there is definitely an element of, you know, the law being kind of a monopoly on a certain language, a monopoly on a venue for resolving disputes. And, and also there's kind of a monopoly on the way risk is managed. I mean, what is risk? Risk you learn in economics is the multiple of the likelihood of something happening times the magnitude of the harm that can be done. And I don't think we adequately consider plus opportunity cost because opportunity costs and magnitude can be balanced. And like, there's a lot of mm-hmm. nuance. So I constantly am talking to clients about, well, that may be, you know, two things like the writ that magnitude of the harm may be huge, but the likelihood of it happening may be low. It is a perfectly appropriate outcome to knowingly take a high magnitude risk because the likelihood of it going south are low. That's fine. And in mm-hmm. fact, there's a doctrine in the law called the business judgment rule that protects business decision makers to take high risk decisions based on that optimization. The other is the magnitude is low and it's more like a nit, but the likelihood is high. And that's where most lawyers focus and get it wrong. Like employment (laughs) offer letters, we assume first off inappropriately that most parties are unsophisticated and they're going to sign whatever's put in front of them. And so we're going to get as much company protective stuff as possible. Two, that we shouldn't trust or we don't trust these people because we don't know them. Right. That's wrong. Three, we should assume everything that can go wrong is likely to go wrong. And four, we assume that people are going to lawyer up the minute they have the opportunity because if things go south, they're going to want to maximize their financial outcome. All of those assumptions can be, you know, Swiss cheese. And I think if we look at it fairly, we'll say, well, I actually trust this person and I have this conversation all the time. Well, if you trust this person, you have a high propensity for good communication and the overall magnitude of the harm is relatively low, then let's not overthink it. That's very often my advice. Like I do not resort to just the like needle, you know, pegging. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, let's let's throttle this. Let's think about this. And we're actually pretty well known, I think, because when clients come to us, we're pretty tailored to say like, let's look at the meter here. Like, is this a like go, no go type thing? Is this like a two sentence email response? Or do you need a degree of certitude that we need to like run this thing down to the core? And so we, we call that like the accelerator pedal of legal practice. And we tailor the result to the calculation the the client makes and we'll help them do that. There is no just like, sure, there is like a definitive response you could give to everything. And by that time, often the legal opportunity or the business opportunities come and gone. So like, and I've had that happen. So this is informed. I was in house 
I sent a question out to outside counsel. I didn't hear anything for three weeks. And then I get a four page memo back. I had forgotten the question. The opportunity came and went. They wrote me a four page legal memo that only validated the four bullet points I already had in my head. And we got like a $4,000 bill for it. And I thought, what is this? I, I vowed never to do that. And that's the first value in our website. We are timely and responsive because we know not every question requires an opus. Mm-hmm. So one thing that that brings up for me, Jason, is this idea of experimentation. And I think mm. for many of our listeners, the idea of experimentation and the law are not an intuitive pairing, <laughs> right? Like they're not just like peanut butter and jelly. Let's try it out. But uh, for you, they are. So let's talk a little bit about that, like both in terms of how you help, because because as you were talking about the accelerator, I was thinking about, you know, we do, we have the same conversations with our clients, which is like, you don't have to make this giant decision that is going to be for all time once perfectly. There are other ways to to get at that. So how do you think about that both in terms of advice for people and also in terms of requirements around consistency of application, since your profession is a little bit different than ours in that way? So again, fortunately, I think we tend to come in on the front end of parties coming together to work on something emergent or collaborative. So for us, we're constantly looking at how much effort do we put into prescribing the rules of engagement and the specific allocation of risk and obligation versus how much do we just create and, and fence ring the, the collaboration and then leave it to the parties to kind of figure out and provide some guardrails for exit. Mm. And so for us, we're pretty well accustomed to doing that, whether it's letters of intent or joint venture agreements or even just less formal constructs. I mean, we're working on some where we're advising, don't even form an entity yet. You know, this thing is so amorphous that, you know, there needs to be some validation of this and that. Maybe you just like informally track things. I mean, we work with DAOs, democratic autonomous organizations that are, Mm -hmm. that are decidedly non-legal constructs and cooperatives and others where I think emergence is more the priority than protection. And so I think it's embedded, uh, experimentation is embedded. And I actually use that word taken from you all and from other kind of regenerative consultants to think about experimentation in a, in a safe to do way and to look at the legal spend in an agile context. Like you wouldn't overinvest in anything around an experiment until there's some validation and feedback. Right. Why mm-hmm. would you in a legal context? It just doesn't make any sense. So we, and I learned that through mistake, frankly. One of the early clients I remember working with, we spent they spent tens of thousands of dollars to build you know, a NASA spaceship of a cooperative that was so <laughs> complex and sophisticated. We spent months, and it was all based on assumptions and prescriptions. We drafted financing documents and all the rest. When he finally got into the field to pitch the idea, it was crickets. No one understood it. Nobody Oof. had the energy for it. And so it, it made me kind of reel back in that much of this work is really about agility and experimentation and kind of tailoring your, your investment and structure around the commitments of stakeholders and around kind of, you know, the belief, the proven belief that there's a product that meets the market. It's interesting because the more I've worked with you and even as this conversation has unfolded, the more I think about legal work 
in an organization, particularly in, you know, Brave New Worky, Teal organization, as a story, as a timeline of events rather than as a state. Like, mm. it's not get all your legal stuff in order and then you're done forever. It's more like what are the milestones and transition points and evolutions on this journey to wherever you're going to your point where you can modulate, like, what are we designing for? What are we optimizing for? What do we now know as we as we grow and shapeshift? And so it, it aligns with what Rodney's saying about experimentation quite a bit. And it even, and this is where it bumps up to the beginning of the conversation, because I don't think the law is particularly well equipped to help with that in every case. So for example, I really think that, you know, there should be a much more popular construct around founders creating businesses, setting some kind of an upper bound or upper limit on the amount of capital reward that they'd like to see as a result of that entity with an automatic conversion to cooperative state or, or employee ownership state or distributed or decentralized ownership. And that there should be legal constructs and roadmaps for that. And instead, it's like, no, you're either a capitalist till you die, or you're cooperative. But the idea that you transition from one state to the other, or that someone would want to get a certain amount of juice out of the orange before they share, and then share aggressively, it's just like anathema in our culture. And then the legal work obviously reflects that. So it feels to me like we need to start talking about new journeys rather than just new documents and then and then designing architecture for those journeys. I'm so glad you went there. So this gets to a really important question about, you know, we it may seem technical and, and esoteric that, you know, we have all these detailed kind of legal constructs and 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 details to sort out in the formation stage, all of these things funnel up to a set of really intentional policy norms and objectives that have been promulgated Mm -hmm. by existing power structures. So it's Mm -hmm. no accident that the tax code, it's no accident that venture capital (laughs) is as centralized and dominant as it is. It is the intentional outcome of tax reform in the 70s and 80s that ironically puts most pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and public market dollars into high risk, high failure rate investment models Mm -hmm. that are Mm -hmm. optimized for shareholder primacy. The tax code enshrines that, the securities laws enshrine that, and frankly, those are all very intentional policy constructs. And it was really revealing to me to think about all of the seemingly innocuous and invisible ways that extractive capitalism is embedded in public policy at the most minute level. Like when we think about how and if to issue stock options, that's a largely tax-driven calculation. Those tax calculations were put in place to incentivize certain behaviors under certain constructs. Those are not accidental and they are not inevitable. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what I've been kind of on this provocation on Twitter to like convene a constitutional assembly for a 28th amendment that would create a, a framework, a norm around mutualism that would fundamentally review our legal framework for how it gives implicit advantage to extraction, white supremacy in an individualistic sense. And it's, again, I mean, that sounds abstract, but the reality is we disfavor collectivism and mutualism intentionally Uh to favor shareholder primacy. We're living the intentional outcomes of that rotten experiment. So if we want to do it differently, we need a new set of norms to then create the framework for a new set of laws 
that then justify us reforming the tax code and making it the 10-page document we all hope it to be so that we can easily and not seem like we're totally radical lefty weirdos for wanting to push broad-based ownership and broad-based wealth. That's the part that drives me batshit crazy is that somebody listens to this sort of with one ear in the car and they're like, oh, well, Jason's just, you know, a Marxist and doesn't care about outcomes for any individuals. And that is not that is not at the core of what we're talking about. What we're talking about is balance and and really being clear about what you value in society. So, for example, would you be willing if it meant that you could make an extra billion dollars as a CEO to poison the rivers? Well, for most people, they'd say no, but the legal system is designed to say yes, right? It's actually designed to say like, that's the thing we care about. So we're going to optimize for it. And so all, all I'm saying, and I think, and I think I can, you know, sort of put words in your mouth too, although you correct me if I'm wrong, is like, this does not eliminate the possibility for someone to have an amazing outcome as a founder, as an executive, as a leader. It, do, it also doesn't eliminate the possibility for hundreds or thousands of people to simultaneously have incredible capitalist outcomes where they all grow together and and everybody succeeds. It just puts that stuff into perspective and balance with all the other things we might value, including that mutualism or that mutual success, which hilariously is very self-reinforcing to the system itself. So I would rather have half the, you know, half the riches and not have to do any, you know, cajoling, working, mandating, hustling 80-hour weeks than then to be twice as rich beyond a certain point and have to do all that shit. And that is the part where I just do like, I do not understand CEOs of systems where it's like, oh yeah, they, you know, actively shut down a union vote because people have to piss in bottles. And this person has billions of dollars and it's like, nope, I, we're going to need every one of those pennies. I, I just don't get it. And, and, you know, this, this can easily be misunderstood as a, as like lefty economic radicalism. But in reality, it's much simpler. This is really about allowing legal frameworks to align the incentives of stakeholders that produce the outcomes for the company. A company is just a separate legally recognized organ that is dependent on lots of stakeholders. And right now there's just simply under the law an extractive mechanism to pay workers. You have to, and, and albeit with the best possible objectives to protect workers from the extraction and the worst impulses of mm-hmm. capitalism, be mm-hmm. it dangerous work conditions, underpayment, sure. et cetera. But in the middle, you know, we've designed that system for the 20% of offenders and the 80% of actors that would like to further align the incentives of workers and vendors and, and, and contractors with the outcomes of the company can't really do that because that would in some ways mean underpaying people, even though the outcomes are far better. And of course, that's still only possible if there's a liquidity event. We don't have a capital market to support these humane transitions of companies that are in the public good. And yet it was Ronald Reagan in the early 80s who pushed zealously for employee ownership as a way to create Mm -hmm. thousands more capitalists (laughs) <laughs> we just don't have a common vocabulary in this country because we have earned income and capital income and right. nothing in between. And and broad-based ownership is really about creating more of a third way, a third economic mechanism for <laughs> aligned wealth creation and income security. Rodney loves third ways. I do. That's why I laughed. Yeah, it's my favorite thing. 
I want to ask Jason, what what have we not talked about that you're extra smart about? <laughs> We've heard a lot of smartness. But, like, is there anything that, yeah, is there anything that sticks out for you that we could hit? All right, we're going to turn the tables here. I've got a question for you all. So in my work with cooperatives particularly, but also kind of onlookers to the worker ownership space, there are myths and misconceptions around how broad-based ownership models like cooperatives are operating or governed or managed. I think there's still a belief that you either operate collectively, all hands decide everything from coffee selection to <laughs> you know, layoffs, or that there's a conventional you know, hierarchy of C-suite to lower level managers. And I don't know that there's recognition in my niche of the world that there are bespoke and more kind of functional operating systems. So that I'm curious to hear, where do you see the trends and where do you see some lessons that could apply to business structures that are more inherently democratic from a legal standpoint? The first place that my mind goes is that we, you know, we need alignment across all the different tools that we're using to realize these values and principles that we started talking about in the beginning. So if we want to have an inclusive, equitable, you know, autonomous, transparent, decentralized, consent-driven system, then the legal work has to match that, the operational work has to match that, and, and the governance work has to match that. And so it's funny to me, for example, that like, a, a standard cooperative will decide everything through a vote when a vote is an inherently tyrannical option. Like 51 people say yes, 50, 49 say no. That's not a great outcome for the 49 that are diametrically opposed to the choice. And so I think that we have to reevaluate that stuff as well. And obviously, that's a lot of the work that we do here. It feels to me like, you know, every system needs to start from a set of principles and then design the way it reflects that. So everyone can be an owner. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone needs to be involved in every single decision because of the you know woeful inefficiency of that. Not not to mention the fact that not everybody necessarily has anything to say about. I don't like I don't know about coffee, so I shouldn't weigh in on the coffee decision. So having a system that then says, all right, well, can we have not a completely static nested power structure, but a dynamic power structure across all the different decision spaces that we hold? that's driven by making consent-based choices about who's involved in what, that can always be clawed back or unwound or refreshed or elected, et cetera, but that still allows us to then centralize where it's valuable to enable speed. Because I think the thing people often forget when they argue about centralization and decentralization is the, the macro question is what actually makes you more responsive and more adaptive. If that's the goal is to change and evolve in the direction of your purpose, then just like you want the legal work to grow and change over time, you probably want the governance structure to do the same thing. And you probably want the operational structure to be able to do the same thing. So small groups, elected, identified, centralized and decentralized in a you know, responsive way based on actual data and actual, you know, reality feels like a much more hybrid approach to me. Yeah. And I, I would add two things. One is a lot of the descriptors around the cooperative 
are probably used and held up just to avoid something that feels more cooperative. <laughs> so it's like, it's not that different than when we start talking to people about self-management and they're like, you seem like a fucking hippie and we're not firing all the bosses. And I'm like, who said that? No one said yeah. anything about just like tearing up the work. It's like, all right, pump the brakes. Uh, so first of all, you know, it nothing should ever be kindergarten soccer in any complex system. Like we should not all <laughs> chase any ball any decision because it's inefficient, it's chaotic, it's undisciplined, and it's not going to get us where we're headed. And I find in my work, and it sounds like you do too, people hold that up as a reason to not try something. Right. The other thing that occurred to me as Aaron was talking is, for me, there's certainly a first principles conversation about the OS as a whole, but where I think most of this shows up is actually in the practices in each of the parts of the operating system. Mm. So if we know from a macro level what our first principles are, that's often work that companies I find are pretty well equipped to do. And I usually find them to be like fairly people positive. But then when we get into how we compensate or how we distribute equity or how we create strategy or how we allocate resources or how we measure performance, that's where it starts to fall apart. So like what I'm interested in and... In a lot of those moments, people hold up legal compliance and IT as the reason they can't make those shifts. So from my perspective, the the intersection is the third way happens, the right constraints happen in the practices in the OS. The first principles conversation has to be something that gets us enough alignment and filtering to know what we're going to try. But None of it comes to life until we have a real conversation about how we pay or how we resource or how we budget or how we do whatever. There's so much overlap in the way you think about and approach organizational practice and operating systems. And I think there's some natural osmosis. I hear so much of you in in my voice to clients, and I suspect that might go uh, the other way as well. Mm -hmm. I think there's an impulse, and I won't go so far as to judge it, but there's a real impulse in organizations to try to draft something, to write something down before the hypothesis has been developed, the objectives have been identified, the hard design work and conversations have taken place and something has been tried. Mm -hmm. And so I often am asked, well, we want to do this and here are the limitations. And like they, a lot of times I hear the a hack together design process that says, okay, now let's like write this up. And I'm a firm believer that drafting should be the last step in the process to codify something where there's a high propensity for success, or there's a high belief mm -hmm. that it resonate that it will work in reality, that conditions exist. And so I push back and we've been doing more initial consultations to really focus folks on the design process so that they can hear some of the you know, logical inconsistencies or hear for themselves some of the objectives that may that they may not have identified early on. Because those need to be probed, and operating systems live in reality. And I and I fight the impulse also to standardize this stuff. I think a lot of times yeah. people want what yeah. is the uniform legal structure for this thing in a box so that we can try it. And I think well, you've got it all backwards. Mm -hmm. Anything that's been standardized has been distilled from you know numerous areas of practice based on certain conditions. I even resist case studies because I think you don't know how they got there. We need to okay. study your conditions, understand your reality, connect that to your objectives to then only then begin to talk about structure. So 
that's a hard pill for some clients to swallow to think, what am I actually getting here? And yet it's so important because we avoid them doing a lot of the, you know, experimentation on the fly only to realize, you know, I liken it, you're building the runway as you're running down it only to realize the plane doesn't have wings. <laughs> and so we really need to do that, that kind of thoughtful design work ahead of time. So that is such a helpful perspective to hear. Thanks. I think doing the work for yourself is a pretty good place to draw things to a close. Um, so Jason, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and this thinking? Jason Weiner PC is at www.jrweiner.com. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, but jrweiner.com has some of our provocations and blogs. And then Main Street Phoenix is a cool project to embody the values and principles that we've been working on for more than a decade. And that's at mainstreet.coop. Awesome. And if you all like what you're hearing and enjoy just getting nearly a full hour of free, amazing future of work legal advice from one of the best (laughs) brains in the field, please leave us a review or forward our show to someone who needs it. A quick tip of the hat, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.